and uh, turn with me to the 19th chapter of the book of John. And if you're downstairs and you're listening, why not come upstairs? We won't bite, I promise. And uh, if you are downstairs and you're going to stay downstairs, here's what I ask, and I'm being serious about this. Please do not be a distraction downstairs, okay? The Word of God is being taught, sometimes not very well, but it is the Word of God. So it's not a time to play on your phones. I'm just going to be honest with you. Walk around, eat donuts incessantly. (laughs) And I'm not trying to be mean, but... This is a worship service, and uh, not being legalistic, if you're downstairs and you're getting mad right now, don't get mad. Uh, Don't go off in a huff. But listen, the magic, I shouldn't say magic, I guess, but the Holy Spirit does something when we're together, and it's powerful. So I'm asking if you can, I know some can't come upstairs. That's why we have it downstairs. But don't use downstairs as an excuse to coast. Does that mean? Okay. Okay. Here's the other thing. Rachel is having a very difficult time getting people to man the bouncy house. And I don't really understand why. I mean, it's only for an hour. It's not for all four hours. So here, here's what Jan and I are offering. No, listen. (laughs) If you man the bouncy house, we'll do like we did last time with the bouncy house. We're going to appear at some point and play King of the Hill in the bouncy house. Last time I got murdered and I had, uh, you know, brush burns everywhere on my knees and elbows from trying to grab her and keep her uh, out of the entrance or whatever. So uh, please, please do that if you can. But anyway, that was a lot of fun and will be a lot of fun. And you don't have to go uh, except for about an eighth of a mile to do missions next week. You don't have to go to Hungary, although we have a team going to Hungary and we're happy about that. But you don't have to. You can just come down there and share and love and pray with people and love people in Jesus' name. And it's right an eighth of a mile from here. How cool is that? Okay? So bring people. Tell people about it. Bring your friends. Be lots of food, lots of fun, and uh, one King of the Hill uh, competition, okay, in the bouncy house. <laughs> do, do me a favor, turn to John chapter 19. And, well, keep your finger in John chapter 19. Uh, because I'm going to read, and you can come with me if you want, I'm going to read Isaiah 53, a little bit of it. Can you believe Isaiah written some 800 to 1,000 years prior to the time of Christ? Can you believe this? And here in Isaiah 53, we read this. If you weren't a Christian, you might say it's almost too hard to believe. Verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For... He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows 
and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wow. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And... He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. We are in John chapter 19, where we have been examining, we are examining the crucifixion. Actually, we've been examining the uh, trials first of uh, Jesus, and now we're going to examine the crucifixion. The crucifixion. And what we've said, and we read about it last week, is that this is the crux. Crux actually comes from the cross. See what I did there? It's Latin for the cross. But this is the crux. This is the pinnacle. This is the heart of all life and history. That's where we are. We're reading. But see, the problem is it becomes so generic for us because we read it maybe during Easter or we read it during Christmas and our parents sort of tell us about it, and yet uh, this is what saves Jesus' work at the cross. It justifies us, just as if we never sinned. Our sins are forgiven. We're sanctified by this. We're redeemed by the death of Jesus and the blood of Christ, or the blood of Christ. And all of the answers of life, seriously, it's not pastor speak, all of the answers of life are found at the cross. Everything. Your past is taken care of, your present is held, and your future is sure. And it's all because of the cross of Jesus. And so we here now don't want to do this. We don't want to just read this today and sort of just get it over with so we can watch football or whatever we do. But we want to pay attention and listen 
and see what the Lord is doing uh, or has done for us. What's fascinating about this scripture, and the reason I chose to uh, start us out with Isaiah 53, is that what the writer of John, who is John, by the power of the Holy Spirit is doing here, is he's making an unbelievable contrast. And the contrast is this, that in the courts of the world, An injustice, or an injustice is being done. It's the injustice of all injustices. An innocent man, he's showing you in John chapter 18 and John chapter 19, is being falsely accused, falsely tried, having his due process rights trampled upon, uh, all because of the hatred of the people of the world for him. He's despised and rejected by men. And so, in one sense, you can read this and just sort of feel pity and anger and sadness. And yet, at the same time, this writer, by the Holy Spirit, is trying to tell us and is telling us, calm down, don't worry. All of this was being prophesied for your good and his glory. It's fascinating. And so, last week, we talked about uh, some of the uh, trials. And remember, you don't get all of the trials in John. You have to piece them all together uh, through all the scriptures. And that's sort of a, a real comfort to us because we don't want witnesses colluding together and saying the exact same thing. No, here come these different witnesses and they're telling you different things about what they uh, observed and saw. And that's how you would expect four witnesses to such a traumatic event to do it. John now coming in and telling us, and we've seen here that uh, Jesus has been tried by a guy named Annas. He was the former high priest. He was getting rich off religion, and they took him to Annas first. And that's where we see Jesus in John chapter 18 uh, being initially abused. He was slapped in the face. Mm. Second trial uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John 18, 24, he's led away from Annas, who's the father-in-law of the current high priest at the time, Caiaphas. They take him to Caiaphas's house with others who were in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, sort of the Supreme Court of Israel at the time. And he was bloodied there by abuse and spat on. And then trial number three, he was taken before the elders and the scribes and the whole Sanhedrin council. That's not in John. You have to find that in the other gospels. And now it's about five or six in the morning. The religious trials not having worked for them, they switch courses and they take him to the Roman uh, governor or procurator, uh, Pontius Pilate. Pontius sees this man several times and goes out and talks to the people about Jesus. And he says in John 18, 28 and 37, or through 37, that he found no guilt in this man. So now you can't get a conviction through the religious trials, and you're certainly not getting a conviction through the, through the ruling civil trial. In Luke 23, we're told that we're not told here Pontius Pilate knew about a way out. (laughs) 
he found out about a way out. He said, oh, wait a minute, Herod's in town? This Herod, he's in town for the feast and the festival? Oh, good, so I can ease my conscience. Let's send him off to Herod, who was one of the tetrarchs of uh, the regions in which Jesus lived up in the north. And that didn't work either. Uh, he was just simply silent before that one. And now we come in where Jesus comes back before Pilate, and Pilate tries to release Jesus, tries to release him. We're going to read it right here. So look here in verse 1, chapter 19. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. It's really fascinating because you and I and we, we can go out at the if you haven't got the 1988 article from the Journal of American Medicine about a crucifixion, it was these physicians who examined what would happen to a person if they were crucified, okay? And then they then take the scriptural accounts and say what exactly medically happened to Jesus. So it's fascinating. I mean, you could devote hours of study to what was happening at the cross. But look, the gospel writers just say this scourged him. They don't go into the details. And I think one of the reasons is because everybody knew at the time what that meant. This was devastating. To be scourged was to be stripped down and to be tied around something so that your back was tight and then hit with a whip with, you know, big lead balls that would hit you and make your back like meat, tenderized. And then that on the other ends of the other cords of that little whip, you would have shards of bone that would go into your back and rip it off. And many have said, extra biblical accounts, that you could see the nerves and you could see the organs of a man's back after he was scourged. What's terrible about this, obviously that's terrible, but what's terrible about this is Pilate knew he was innocent. And to appease the crowd, he scourged him. Now something I didn't tell you last week, but you should know, it doesn't tell you this in the Bible, but this is historical fact. Pontius Pilate was on thin ice with Rome. He had already had several strikes against him. See, here's what the, how the Romans ruled. The Romans did this. They would go in and they would dominate a country, but they would keep the administration in place. They would just come in and monitor things. And as long as you just ran your country and did your thing, we're just going to keep it like that it is, as long as we keep the peace. We don't want anybody to upset the Roman apple cart. Soon as peace is upset, mm, boy, Roman would come down with an iron fist. And as long as you just paid your taxes to Rome and you just lived quietly, you could do your religion, you could do anything. But don't upset the peace or else they would come down strong. And what happened here is uh, Pontius Pilate made at least three really bad blunders with the Jewish people. When he first was uh, um, uh, sent to be the governor of uh, of Israel, he marched into Jerusalem and he marched up with his people on the Temple Mount with banners 
that had images of uh, Caesar uh, as if he were deity, in which they thought he was. And that really made the Jewish people mad, so mad that they walked up to Caesarea, a beach town, and they where, where Pilate lived, and they protested, and Rome got wind of it and was not happy with Pontius Pilate. He later wanted to build some things, and he dipped into the temple of the Jews' treasury to take out some taxes. How do you think that went? The Jews were really mad, and Rome heard about it again, and they, Rome was not happy with Pontius Pilate. He did another thing with some uh, shields that he put his face on again, and uh, that, that was it. But the point being is, he was in like real trouble with his own bosses back in Rome, and he didn't want any uh, information of any civil unrest or religious unrest to get back to Rome. So he's trying to appease and compromise so that he's kind of in a rock and a hard place to do the things that these folks want, and yet he's a innocent man. <laughs> and so he says to himself, I think, well, listen, if we scourge him, I mean, they've got to give up now. They're not going to continue in their hate for this man and their thirst to kill him. So we'll scourge him. And what's fascinating about a Roman scourging is, did you know this? Oftentimes the Romans would use a scourging, that whipping, to gain a confession. And many times they wouldn't have to go much past two or three hits. And they would be like, okay, that's enough. I did it. So it takes on a new meaning when you read in the prophecy about he didn't open his mouth. Well, the reason he didn't open his mouth when they scourged him is he had nothing to confess. He was innocent. He was without sin. Isn't that fascinating? So here, Pilate takes Jesus and they scourge him. Now remember, he had uh, uh, sweat drops of blood in the garden the night before. He had no sleep. He'd been walking around all night, being back and forth. He'd been bloodied by abuse. He'd been spit on. And now the scourging. Oftentimes people didn't survive a scourging. Well, this one went the full length. And you know this, in Isaiah, the Bible tells us that the Messiah would be marred worse than any man. He was unrecognizable. So Pilate took Jesus and he scourged him. How cruel, how savage. And then the soldiers there, they come and twist a crown of thorns and put it on his head. One time I got in a wreck with a fire truck. Can you believe this? Yeah, well, I did. I screwed up my vacation plans for a long time. And here's why. Because I had, anyway, it was on my credit that I was being, I had a judgment against me for $400,000. And I never did. But I got in a wreck with a fire truck. And I got the worst of it, to be honest with you. But when I came out of my car, which was totaled, and look at those firemen, it hit me. Here's why. They were bleeding. Like you couldn't believe the blood that was coming down their faces. 
the guys in the front seat of the fire truck. And the reason why, it wasn't even that serious, but they'd been cut up here by some of the glass that hit them. And it was just little cuts, but it was a bleeding man. It was scary for an 18-year-old kid. <laughs> well, here, they take these thorns and they jam it on his head with a purple robe. Now, why would it be thorns that they were putting there? Well, they were trying to be very mean and cruel, of course, but see, what this recalls for us is Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And you know that story, or you know that, but I'll read it to you. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. In other words, that's the curse of sin that came upon the world for what? Rebellion. And now, our Lord and Savior here, after he's been scourged, of course, they're trying to be mean. But there's never a greater symbol because Jesus is going to reverse the curse. So they put this crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe. I think in another gospel it uses another color like scarlet or anything. I never get messed up about that. And here's why. See, this is, it always comes back to football, doesn't it? You ever watch Virginia Tech play football? You can't tell what color they are. They're either purple or they're red or they're brown and you can't really see, it's weird. They're in this in-between, so why would we be upset if one guy called it purple and one guy called it scarlet? You wouldn't be. Anyway, they put on him a purple robe. They're, they're mocking him. The funny part about it, he is the king of kings. And then they said, Hail, king of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again. Watch this. Catch this. Look over in chapter 18. Pilate's, going, he, Pilate's in his house. He's got Jesus with him, and he keeps going out to the people and back into Jesus. And then out into the people, look, look in verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Look over in verse 38. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. And now, verse 4, Pilate then went out again and said to him, behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. So he's going back and forth in, in the house, out of the house twice now. And the third time, what does he do? He says, come on, you're coming with me. And the reason he's bringing him out there is this one, our king, is beyond recognition. And he's thinking to himself, I'm sure Pilate is, if I bring him out now, they're just going to say, stop, enough's enough. That's enough. You've done enough. Jesus comes out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate says, look, look at the man. And in verse 6, therefore, watch this. Enough. Stop it, please. That's not what we hear. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify. 
crucified. Now you must know, right? The Jews didn't execute capital punishment by crucifixion. They did it by stoning. That power has been taken from their hands by their oppressors, the Romans. The Romans didn't even invent crucifixion. Crucifixion as a punishment was invented several uh, hundred years prior by the Persians. But the Romans got a hold of this and they perfected it, so to speak. They made it so cruel and savage and awful, they would get their confession, no doubt. But what we would expect Jesus' people to say, oh, that's enough. They say, no, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him. For I find no fault in him. Here is an innocent man. And the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And now they're talking about Leviticus. The book of Leviticus in chapter 24, verse 16, talks about blasphemy. You can't equate yourself with God in any way as a man. You're committing blasphemy. You're stealing the glory of God. You can't do that. That would be death. And they say to him, you... You ought to, uh, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. By the way, you could look in several places. Psalm 89, you could go there, 26 through 27. It says that the Messiah would be the son of God. He made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Now you have to remember, his wife sends him a little note and says, don't mess with this guy. That's in a different gospel. Don't mess with this guy. I had a dream. Don't get away. <laughs> so he has that in his mind, but he's also a Roman. And if you were like me when you were a little kid, when I went down to the school library, that's what I read, the Roman mythology. What did they believe? They believed gods came out of heaven and lived among men and women that's what they believed. And so, of course, he was the more afraid. He, this man calls himself the son of God, and he's witnessing him in an intimate way, back and forth in his house, watching him react to the cruelty and the savagery and the accusations that are flying against him. And he won't speak out. And there's something glorious about it, even though it's awful. There's this character in this man that's touching Pontius Pilate and he is afraid, and he thinks, wow, this must be a God. And again, he went into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? Remember, he had already told him in prior chapters exactly where he was from. He had come from heaven, he told him, and he'd come from the Father. And Pilate said to him, aren't you speaking to me? Now, Jesus had already spoke to him. Back in John 18, 36 and 37, look, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world. My servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate said to him, are you a king? And he says, hey, I am a king. 
I've come into this world for that purpose, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And he's speaking about his heavenly kingdom, his spiritual kingdom, right? His heavenly kingdom. And he says, watch this. Are you not speaking to me? Why would Jesus not speak? This is an important principle to us, folks. Because he'd already given him the spiritual principle and Pilate, Pontius Pilate had not acted upon it. You're like, why are you so excited about that? <laughs> because that's what the Lord does with us. Oftentimes the Lord asks us to do that or um, you know, go over there and do this or refrain from this or whatever the Lord's asking as a loving father would ask of a son or a daughter. And we just sort of like, huh, okay, whatever, and go on with our life and just do our thing. And you're like, well, why is God silent with me? Well, maybe it's because you're not doing, I'm not doing the thing that he's already asked us to do or the things he's told us about, correct? I always say to people, if you're in a spiritual rut, go back to the last thing that the Lord spoke to you about and just do it, like Nike says. Just do it, just whatever it is. Did the Lord ask you to start a home fellowship? Okay, go do it. Here, you see it. Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you? And power to release you? Wow, what an answer. Things aren't always as, as it seems. As it, we think we're the king of our own life. And we sort of walk around cocky and arrogant. We don't even, might even know it. But, you know, Lord, I got this. I know what I'm doing. I know how to do my job. I know how to do this. I know how to do that. You don't really need to tell me in this area. Here, Pilate says, you don't know. I have the power to crucify you. How condescending and arrogant. And Jesus says, you could have no power at all against me. None. Zero. Unless it had been given you from above. You could read Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Well, who delivered him? Well, that would be the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas. Why? Why would they have a, a greater sin? It's because they had greater revelation. This is a Roman dude who believes in <laughs> and doesn't really know the scriptures. And the Jewish folks had the benefit of Isaiah 50 and 51 and 52 and 53, etc. I mean, look. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, listen to this. I gave my back to those who struck me. This is 800 to 1,000 years prior to the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And he gave my, I gave my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. Many people believe Jesus' beard was plucked out during this time. It's not in the Gospels, but it's here in Isaiah that the Messiah's beard would be plucked out. Can you imagine having your beard plucked out? I didn't hide my face from shame and spitting, it says in Isaiah 50, verse 6. The point being is, he did it willingly. He says, you don't have any power over me. You couldn't have any power against me unless it had been given to you from heaven. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, watch this. Pilate wants to release him, sought to release him, sought out ways to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying... If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. And that's what did it. 
Remember, I gave you the backstory about Pontius Pilate. This is the censure, the clincher. Here you have the Jewish folks, including some of the Jewish religious officials, talking about letting this man go. And he says, or they say, if you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. And you get that? He's there now threatening him, going to Caesar on his shaky ground that he's living on and telling him that there's no rest or peace in an area that he controls. And it's all because of Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate, watch, he compromises. Some people feel sorry for Pontius Pilate, but this is an unbelievable picture of what happens when you compromise with the world. You're always going to be devastated by it, always. You might be fun for a season. You might live in the palace and have people feed you grapes and, you know, what this wife or that husband or whatever. But when you're living for the world, eventually it's going to eat you up. You're going to compromise, and this is a picture of it. You must and we must make our stands for Christ. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar, and you can't speak against Caesar now. So when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Oh, I should have had my map for you today, but... This was fascinating. When we went to Israel this last time, we've been twice. When we went to Israel this last time, we were walking the road to the cross that Jesus you know, took. Now, is it 100% completely accurate? I don't know that they know that. But there is a little mosaic, and that's what they think this was, a mosaic, like a square area. And it would have been over there by the Fortress Antonia, right in front of the Fortress Antonia. That fortress now no longer exists, and what exists in that little walkway is an elementary school. And in the basement of that elementary school, there still exists a pavement, a square pad. And I don't think, I think it was closed the day we were going down there. It was a long story, but that's where... Jesus is being taken now because this is the place where Pilate does his judging. And it's the preparation day of the Passover. It's the preparation day. Tomorrow is going to be the Sabbath, but it's also something even more high and holy. Or, you know, it adds to the highness and holiness, and that's the Passover. It's one of the festivals. Jesus is, by the way, Paul says, our Passover lamb. And about the sixth hour... He said to the Jews, as he brought him out, Behold, your king. And it's sort of his way of saying, Well, you're doing this, not me. Now, I've got to address something. In this uh, account, it says it was the sixth hour. In another account, in Mark, it says he was crucified on the, in the third hour, which would have been about 9 a.m., and the explanation is really sort of easy. John is using a Roman time clock, 12 a.m. to 6 a.m., but a Jew would never do that at this time. They, they go from sun up to sundown, so 6 a.m. is when their day starts. 
And so sometime between 6 a.m. here and 3 a.m., excuse me, excuse me, and 9 a.m., 6 a.m. and 9 a.m., Jesus has walked out, walked to the place where we're going to see, and he's crucified. And so don't get hung up on that is all I'm telling you. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. I mean, Pontius Pilate here, just not taking a stand for what is right, willing to sacrifice even the life of a person so that he could keep his social status, his status. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? He's still trying. He's still trying. He's trying to pin it on them. And the chief priest answered, and this is almost too hard to believe if you know what Anyway, if you know about the Jewish religion, and you do, I know you do. This is almost too hard to believe. This is like at the bottom right now. You're at the bottom of man's evil heart. We have no king but Caesar. See, a, a Jewish person would never swear an allegiance to a king that's not God, the Father. And he would never swear an allegiance to a king, especially who claims deity. And in fact... In another gospel, in Luke, it says, we have no king but Caesar. That's what they say. We have no king but Caesar. And it just shows you the depths that a heart can go, even if it's religious, without the Spirit of God and being born again and counting on the finished work of Jesus Christ, just trying to be an external Christian and do good and be good. And the problem is you can't be good enough or do good enough without the Spirit of God living in you. And many try it, and we have churches full of people who on the outside look wonderful and beautiful, and their ties up and their things on, and they get dressed, and, but inside they're dead and rotting. And we don't want that. I don't say it as a criticism. I say it out of the heart of compassion and love. That we don't want to just be religious. We want to know Jesus in deeper ways. We're thankful for all that he's accomplished, and we're going to see it here in a minute. And he, so he's delivered then to be crucified, and then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross. Now listen, the cross was put on him, but what happened? As he's walking, not in this account, but in the other three accounts, this guy who'd come up for the celebration, Simon. The Romans like tapped him and said, hey, you, buddy, I want you to carry this cross. So Simon the Cyrene, I think that's from North Africa, had come up to participate in the festival. Why would it be that somebody else would bear the cross? He bear the cross, but then somebody else Again, Jesus isn't guilty. The guilty one is the one who carries the cross to the place of the skull. That's what the Romans did. Isn't it interesting how God orchestrated the events to show us he's not guilty? He went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Calvary is the Latin form of Golgotha. That's where we get Calvary. It's outside the city. Hebrews uh, 13 tells us the sacrifices were taken outside the city to 
be given, and Jesus was taken outside the city, sort of outside the camp. And you have two possible places in the city of Jerusalem. There's the traditional Golgotha, and if you go there right now, it's sort of sad. There's a church on top of the place where it says traditional Golgotha about there, up there, and the church, even though it doesn't have a, a wall dividing it, is divided in between four denominations. And I'm not trying to be uh, inappropriate here, but it's sort of creepy what man has done to what they think Jesus accomplished. And you go in there and you don't feel right and feel good, and it's, it's, it's sort of weird. But then there's another place, and that's the possible Golgotha right there. That's called Gordon's Calvary. That's the place that we all like to go. It's a peaceful garden. It's actually beside a, a cut of rock that you can sort of now, it's deteriorated some, but you can sort of make out a skull in the rocks. And beside that is, some, is a tomb, and you're actually able to walk into the tomb, and uh, many people believe it was there. And you can read about the debate about whether it was inside or outside, I'll let you do it. They don't know exactly. But anyway, they crucify him there and two others with him. Now remember, I read to you in Isaiah 53, verse 12, that he was numbered among the transgressors. And here it is, coming to life. He's crucified in between two criminals. Jesus in the center. And Pilate writes a title, and he puts it on the cross, and the writing is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It wasn't in the uh, city, but it was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, the language of religion or theology, Greek, the uh, uh, language, you know, sort of the normal language or language people spoke, but it was the language of intellectualism and philosophy, uh, and Latin would be the political language. In other words, he wrote this since so that all the people could understand who this was. Isn't that interesting? Jesus died for the sins of the world. And it must have been on a public place that they were going back and forth because these crucifixions were done so to deter others from getting out of line. You got it? So you have that. And the chief priests uh, of the Jews said to the Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but he said, uh, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. In other words, he, don't do he is the king of the Jews, right? He said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. So the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic without, was without seam. <laughs> Folks, this writer is doing something here. Now, in Exodus 28, verses 31 and 32, the great high priest in the Old Testament was to have a seamless tunic. You get that? And when they had crucified Jesus, when they took his garments, they discovered that his tunic was out without seam. And what this tells us is that, and reminds us, is that Jesus is our high priest, is our high priest. You understand, 
Listen to this. In the Old Testament, it describes that the, the great high priest had these awesome, colorful robes and things. But on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement is the day he would go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice for the uh, Israelite people for the entire upcoming year. You know what he would do? He would take off his colorful robes when he went in and he would put on a linen tunic. And if the sacrifices was, was accepted, guess what he would do with his linen tunic? He'd leave them there. He'd put on his other things and he'd come out and the people would go nuts, crazy. Yes, all right. Our sins have been forgiven. And it's sort of what Jesus has done, right? He's paved the way. And you know, what did they find? We'll see in a couple weeks. What did they find in the grave? His claws that he left. Isn't that fascinating? Well, Jesus is. He's the great high priest. He's the one that is the only mediator between God and men. He brings men to God and God to men by his blood. He's the great high priest, and that's what that's telling you. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now he quotes Psalm 22. They divided my garments of going them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Here's more prophecy coming true. Pity or prophecy? Prophecy or pity? See, that's what he keeps doing here. How necessary all of this was. How they thought they were trying Jesus in a trial. And the entire time, Jesus is trying them. In other words, the way in which you react to me is the way that's going to dictate your eternal destiny. And they sort of just blow by that. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. That's in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. And therefore, the soldiers did these things. And now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. Can you imagine the agony she must have been in? And his mother's sister, some believe that's Salome of Mark 15. And Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, who was delivered from seven demons. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, who's that, John? Time out. Four to one. Ladies to men. It's sort of like the men's retreat and the women's retreat. We need to get this rectified. But anyway, here you have it. By the way, in another gospel, it says they retreated and joined more followers of Christ. So they weren't the only ones. They were just the closest ones. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved, he said to his mom, woman, and he uses the same word that we all get freaked out about in John chapter 2 at the wedding. Why would he say woman? Do you remember at John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana? He said woman, gune, wasn't a term of disrespect. It was just saying a, a, a word that's not my mom, but woman. Do you remember what Jesus said? And we all puzzled and we scratched our head. Jesus said, it's not my time. It's not my hour yet. He uses the same word with his mom. 
which means, Mom, this is the time. Wow. Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Now remember, his brothers and sisters, which he had, they're not exactly followers of his yet. And I know the old saying, blood is thicker than water, but you know what's really the thickest is when we all share the life of Christ as brothers and sisters. Here a family is forged. Where? At the soccer game. At all the extracurricular activities you take your children to. A family's forged at the cross. Are extracurricular activities bad and wrong? No, of course not. If you're doing it with the right mindset and in the... I mean, Tim Tebow does it pretty successfully. He juggles football and faith and you know you don't doubt that the Lord's number one. But we have a whole generation of parents sacrificing their kids at the altar of being popular. instead of being Christ-like. Here, we see that Jesus forges a family right there at the foot of the cross. And that's what we're to do. Our families are to be Christ first, other things second. As the Lord leads and directs. And the disciple took her to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished. You see... There's so much that happened at the cross that you don't really sort of get or see until you read the rest of the, the Bible. Like you were justified. Your sins are forgiven and you're counted as if you never sinned at all. Astounding. Justified. But not only that, you receive God's righteousness into your spiritual bank account. He received your sins. His sins were imputed to you at the cross or to him at the cross now, his righteousness is imputed to you when you surrender your life to Jesus. Come on now. And you're redeemed, and you have salvation, and you're sanctified. And he, In other words, the Father and the Son are, and the Holy Spirit, they're doing work at the cross. And here it says uh, that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be filled. And Jesus then said, okay, I thirst. Now remember, at the beginning of the crucifixion, he denied taking the, uh, the drink that would deaden the pain because he wanted to take it all for you. But now he says, okay, I'll take some of that. And why? Because he's willingly now giving up his spirit, bowing his head, and he's crying something, something that should make you jump up and down way more than a Super Bowl or a World Series or an NBA, whatever it is. He says, it is finished. It is finished. To tell us that. It's that phrase that they would use in the areas of commerce when your account had been all cleared up. Great. To tell us that. It's over. You owe me nothing else. It's the word that a great painter would use, like Michelangelo all the brush strokes, hours and sweating and just, and then you look one day and you just go, that's the masterpiece. That's it. Thank you, Lord. 
to telestai. I couldn't do any more to improve upon it. And on and on. And Jesus said it. It's finished. Remember a couple weeks ago I said, we start at the finish line. It's the... <laughs> We start at the finish line. If I was going to run a marathon, 30 miles, 26 miles or whatever, oh man, the, the, the struggle. But the Lord takes us positionally and puts us in a place of victory. It is finished. It's the only religion where it's finished. Every other religion is like, what can I do now? Oh my, I have to get there, I have to get there. Jesus said, it's over. I settled it. Now, the Bible says we do have to run the race because the Bible tells us that positionally you're starting as a victor, but practically you still live in these tents and you're learning to walk in Christ's likeness. That's called sanctification, right? Of course we still run the race, but it is finished. See, folks, as you're forging your family at the cross, see, this is where you take them all the time. I feel so much guilt for my past. It's finished. Somebody did something to me when I was a kid and I can't get over it. It's finished. All of your guilt and shame can be put away. And by the way, it wasn't even your fault. It was their fault. But Jesus died for you. And now you never have to be seen as a victim. You can be seen as a victor. You don't have to keep saying you're a victim. And I know it's hard. I'm not saying it's not hard. These things hurt and take time. I get it. But it's finished. People say, well, I'm lonely. and I, I... It's finished. You never have to be lonely again. Here he is. He comes and lives in your life. And then the Bible tells us he puts us in a little family forged at the cross. And we could go on and on and on. What I'm telling you, family and friends, is the answer is not finding new circumstances. The answer is it is finished. And when your little one has a problem, bring them to the cross. And when your old one has a problem, bring them to the cross. And when you have a problem, bring them to the cross. And you say, well, that's pastor speak. No, that's where power is found folks, for real life and real change and transformation. And if you run to everything else, you'll never be satisfied and it'll never go away. It'll just haunt you. But if you come to the cross, it's finished. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Why break the legs? Because it would accelerate the death of a person. Because when you're being crucified, you're pushing yourself up on that little ledge that they give you so that you can breathe just for a second. But if your legs are broken, now you can't breathe. That's what's happening. And then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, this is part of the, these people knew what they were doing, folks. They crucified lots of people. They knew when somebody was dead. You have a conspiracy theorist out there that say the guy wasn't dead. Swoon, he was just sort of passed out. No, he was dead and they didn't break his legs because he was already dead. And they were experts and they knew. 
But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, but one of them got overzealous. But oh, what the heck, he said. Let's just pierce his side. What's fascinating about this is out of the side of Adam comes his bride. (laughs) Out of the side of Jesus came blood that saves us and water that cleanses us to form his bride. You also could look at Zechariah 12.10 and 13.6 about the spear and the piercing. Again, more prophecy being fulfilled. And immediately blood and water came out. And who has seen, or who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. Listen, it was all completed at the cross. But the Bible tells us that we get grace upon grace upon grace, right? We have grace for today. It was all completed at the cross. There's life in the blood. Am I right? Leviticus tells us that. Where does blood come from? Bone marrow. (laughs) They didn't break the legs or the bones of the Passover lamb. It had to be spotless and with no broken bones. And now, because of what Jesus accomplished, and he sends his spirit into our hearts, listen to this, we always have the resource and the life to live this way, to be the servant on the Sermon on the Mount, to live in forgiveness and love, and not to heckle people on the other side of the political aisle or whatever we do. Not the, no, we don't, we're not evil towards people. We love people. Where do we get it? People who even hate us, who think differently than us. Where? You don't muster it up. I know, because I watch you watch Fox News. Or MSNBC, I watch it. Where do you get the power to love somebody who hates you? It's the life of Christ. They shall look upon him, they pierced. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen, yes, with spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. And there's lots of things that are going into that, but these people, these two guys are, these people are upper crust society power broker people. And they were touched by Jesus. And they followed Jesus from a distance. And yet 
when the chips were down, when the rubber met the road, look, they stood up. It was secret, but now it's in the, in the open. I'm go- Stand for Jesus, and they did. And Jesus was buried. And there's much more we could say about that. But here's what I want to leave you with. And I want you to think long and hard about this, about what I'm about ready to read to you. This is on purpose by the Holy Spirit trying to get us to either pity him or see the prophecy. Maybe a little of both. Listen to what Warren Wearsby says about this uh, chapter. Listen to this. The cross involves much more than an exhibition of innocent suffering. Much more than an exhibition of innocent suffering. On that cross, the Son of God paid the price for the sins of the world and thereby declared the love of God and defended the holiness and justice of God. Now watch this. Listen, this is important. I'm going to say something that's going to get me in trouble. And I did... <laughs> Folks, a fish sandwich ain't saving you. We're not saved by feeling pity for Jesus. Listen, we're not saved by feeling pity for Jesus. We're saved by repenting of our sins and trusting Jesus, the sinless substitute. Watch, if Christ was not actually doing something by his death, wrote Dr. Leon Morris, then we're confronted with a piece of showmanship and nothing more. This doesn't mean that it's wrong for the believer to contemplate the cross and meditate on Christ's sufferings. Of course it's not wrong. The familiar hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, help us to realize afresh the price that Jesus paid for us. But we must not confuse sentimentality with true spiritual emotion. Did you catch that? It's one thing to shed tears during a church service, but it's quite something else to sacrifice, suffer, and serve after the service has ended. We do not simply contemplate the cross. That's my point. Warren Wearsby says, we don't simply contemplate the cross. We carry it. Are you getting this? Listen, there's nothing wrong with going to have a fish sandwich. I do it. I'm not railing on anyone in particular. What I'm saying is, and what Warren Wearsby is writing way more eloquently than I'm saying is don't get caught in the trap of just pitying Jesus. Repent and count on him and trust him for your sins as your substitute defending the holiness and justice of God. That's what he did so that we don't have millions and millions of people across the country just going through like six to eight weeks sort of just giving something up on one day and feeling like it's okay because they sort of went through the scriptures and feel real bad. Well, Pontius Pilate felt real bad. And that's the point. 
we don't simply contemplate the cross. We're called to carry it. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come here and we as we understand these things more and more, Lord, we're so grateful and thankful and we love what you've accomplished, Lord. And while it is good to contemplate what happened, Lord, the message is to repent and turn from our sins. And I just pray, Lord, as we uh, go out from here and eat today and then go on with our lives, Lord. We, this would be what's at the center of everything, your death and your resurrection. We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.